This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to join us with new episodes every Thursday. Now, here on the podcast, we spend most of our time discussing the actions of people at the places where they worked or lived through the ages. But far less well-known are the stories of the animals or pets that lived alongside them. Well, joining me to talk about some of the animals that played their own part in making history at English heritage sites are my three guests for this episode. And if you'd like to introduce yourselves... Hello, I'm Andrew Han. I'm the head of the historians team at English Heritage. I'm Emily Parker and I'm landscape advisor at English Heritage. Hi, I'm Megan Leyland and I'm senior properties historian at English Heritage. Thank you all for coming on the podcast. Uh, let's talk animals. Andrew, let's start by talking about the typical animals that lived at English Heritage sites. A lot of the properties that English Heritage cares for are in rural locations where the original inhabitants would have needed a degree of self-sufficiency. And English Heritage also looks after a number of monastic sites. So what kind of animals would have been at these kinds of properties? Well, I mean, there would have been animals at the properties really, really throughout the ages and uh, through over the centuries. So, I mean, if you go back to say the Roman period, then a lot of our Roman sites are Roman villas, such as Lullingston in Kent, and these would have required a large sort of agricultural estate to support them. And on these farms, you would have found all sorts of animals, cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, dogs, horses, the sorts of animals you'd expect to see on a farm today. And the Romans also, of course, kept the hens and geese and other, other sort of um, poultry as well. And then if we move forward a little bit to the medieval period, then, as you said, we have our monastic sites, and these were really substantial agricultural enterprises with often vast numbers of sheep and cattle. Just to give an example, Revo Abbey was renowned for its sheep rearing and wool production, and it had over 6,000 acres of grazing land, which would have held six, seven hundred, eight hundred or more sheep. And there was a walled precinct of 37 acres, which the monks had close to the, the abbey itself, and they had closes there for the livestock, which they could keep in the in the winter months. So it's a sort of really massive enterprise, which would have brought in large profits for the abbey and helped to support it. And castles, too, were not only fortresses. We need to see them as being the centres of large agricultural estates, which would have helped sustain the lord of the manor who lived there. And each castle would have had a large area of land, which was known as a demean land, which was the land that was actually owned by the lord himself, which he needed to maintain himself, and an other land which he would have tenanted out. Within this land, they had these fields, open fields, which were lots of sort of strips of land planted with crops, but they also had some land set aside as common pasture and meadows, and these would have been grazed by the lord's sheep and cattle, but also by the sheep and cattle belonging to his tenants, and they would all have been mixed together, and they would have had to sort of like had them branded or, you know, sort of in some way to identify whose sheep was whose, but they would have all been in this common field to graze. It's really important to be a landowner and to be able to control your self-sufficiency that, you know, you can survive. And I think having land is very important uh, back in the Middle Ages and, and even before that, isn't it? Farmland was the economy. Yeah, farmland is the economy. And I mean, that is the case right through from the medieval period, right through into later periods. If you think of some of our great country states like Audley End in Essex, 
a magnificent Jacobean mansion owned by the Braybrook families in the 19th century. And they had a home farm there, which was used for grazing a valuable herd of shorthorn cattle and also their prize herd of Alderney cows, where they uh, were kept for their milk primarily. And they were really renowned for these type of cows, They're similar to Jersey cows, and they're, they're renowned for their quality but also the quantity of milk they produced. And the, the fifth Lord Braybrook and his land agent, uh, William Seymour Hosley, they kept detailed ledgers of the milk yields for each individual cow. So you have like a list of different cows and how much milk they produced on a weekly or monthly basis. And this special ledger was given an award in 1882 by the British Dairy Farmers Association because they were sort of testing out if they fed the cows different types of winter feed, what type of milk would they produce and how much butter could you get from it and this sort of thing. So it's really quite scientific. And if you're thinking of science, then Prince Albert at, uh, at Osborne House, similarly, he had a, a model farm at Barton Manor, which was adjacent to Osborne House. And there he tried out a lot of the latest farming technique, in particular new approaches to livestock breeding. And the Queen brought in a herd of Spanish longhorn cattle, specially brought in from Spain. And they were sort of, they had a selective breeding program there to try and improve the stock. And they also had uh, state-of-the-art piggeries and stables and whatever, where the farm manager could experiment with different feedstocks and selective breeding. So there's lots of sort of scientific approaches to farming going on there at some of our sites in the, in the 19th century. Yes, that's a heavily agricultural thing, as we've just been describing there. And of course, you know, places like Audley End House, which we've been to before and stood in the walled garden together, there was the walled gardens as well, um, which was another side of feeding yourself and making sure that you could survive. It, it was indeed, yes. I mean, and they would have had even there. You would have had horses working in the in the gardens, helping carry stuff around. You know, and also the horses' manure was used in the kitchen gardens. So you you've got this close link even with the kitchen gardens with animals. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, horses at Audley End because um, there are some some other links between horses and English heritage sites. Could you give us a few and where they are? Yeah, of course. There are links with horses going way back. Probably one of the earliest examples would be uh, the forts upon Hadrian's Wall. For instance, Chester's Fort was the site of a, a garrison of uh, cavalrymen. There were 500 cavalrymen there who guarding the uh, crossing over the South River Tyne. And within the fort there, you have 16 barrack blocks. Each of them would have housed 32 men and their horses. So the horses and the men were housed together inside these barracks. And we know that from AD 178, you have the Second Asturians, which is a Spanish cavalry unit, is based there. And they remain at Chester's right through until the end of the uh, Roman occupation of Britain, so until the early 5th century. Also, moving a little bit further forward to the uh, medieval period, you've got riding horses are really important, obviously, both for mounted knights, but also for travel, for just riding and getting about, and also for working, sort of heavy work within the castle or within the uh, grounds around there was, was done by with using horses so most of our castle sites will have a stable block inside them at some point and some of those that are particularly important are those up near the Scottish borders where you have to keep all your horses within the bounds of your castle because of the issue of border raiding. You had the border reavers who were coming across from Scotland on cattle and horse stealing raids. And so you'd have to have all your cattle and horses concealed within the walls of your castle mm. area. And then moving further south, the stables at Kenilworth Castle, which uh, are now used as the shop and tea room, they're very extensive. They're 180 metres long and they had room for 30 great horses and 20 geldings. So what's a, what's a gelding then, Andrew? Well, that's a, a castrated male horse, often a young horse. So uh, they would have been ones that were sort of the younger age range. 
Mm. So, Megan, I understand that horses, as Andrew has been describing, have also played an important role at other English heritage sites, including Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire. Tell us about that. Horses played a really important role at Bolsover Castle and in particular in the life of one of its owners who lived there in the 17th century, William Cavendish, Duke of Newcastle. He was really passionate and enthusiastic about horses and he was a great rider, a great horseman and was fascinated with them from a really young age. He learnt to ride with um, Prince Henry when a boy and this fascination continued throughout the whole of his lifetime. During those civil war years he went into exile, he was a royalist and set up a riding school in Antwerp which was sort of where all the great aristocracy and great and the good wanted to visit it. On his return at the Restoration, he returned to Bolsover, where he continued to pursue this passion. And there's this absolutely wonderful reference in his biography written by his second wife, Margaret Cavendish, that says that perhaps the horses equally appreciated William, that they seemed to rejoice whensoever he came into the stables. Um, (laughs) So a really passionate horseman. (laughs) Yeah. What else was he interested in specifically regarding the horses? I understand that there was something that we can thank him for today. Yeah, he was an absolute expert in menage, which is kind of well the forerunner to modern dressage. He's quite often considered as one of the fathers of modern dressage. And, and menage was the art of training horses to execute really complex movements and exercises. It was a really skilled performance menage. It, was, it took great control and strength and patience and was really seen as a as a marker of social status uh, of manliness and also actually helped you with practical things at the time so we talked a bit about hunting that skill with horses was great for hunting um, great on the battlefield mm. and William really argued that nothing could be more comely or pleasing he would say than to see horses go in all the several airs so the airs being the movements of those horses during menage yes and if anyone's familiar with dressage i think it's what some people might just call the prancing horses bit at the olympics um <laughs> <laughs> which is is a very skillful thing to do i must i must admit i mean that that's quite hard to train an animal to do that isn't it Um, Yeah, it's training horses almost to dance. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How many horses were kept at his riding school then? Well, at Bolsover in the 1660s, he built a whole range dedicated to riding, which had a riding house. It had stables, which probably accommodated around 15 horses, uh, lodgings, a smithy, a shoeing house. And these would have housed horses of all different kinds of breeds, probably actually from all around the world, from North Africa, Spain, Turkey, really sort of top, highly valued and highly prized horses. Did Cavendish train them all himself or did he have stable hands who was teaching these skills to? Well, there undoubtedly would have been a large number of servants associated with the the caring of these horses, grooms and the such like. And he did have a master of the horse, Captain Mazine, who would perhaps in his absence have, have trained these animals. But it's quite clear that William was an exceptionally experienced horseman himself and probably would have spent many of his days when he could training them. And he actually wrote a lot of his training methods down in some really seminal texts of the time. In 1658, he published on his his training methods and again in 1667. 
And, you know, they were quite forward thinking in many ways for the time. He really advocated a style of training which took into account the temperament and nature of these horses to work with them. You know, rider and horse have to learn and gain a mutual respect for each other rather than perhaps some of the harsher methods of disciplining horses which were taught at the time. And I think many of these techniques are still appreciated still today. Mm. So we talked about the horses, Cavendish's legacy. What evidence is there of his legacy, of this dressage, as it became known, at Bolsover today? One of the really great things is that we actually still sometimes have horses who come and use that incredible riding range at Bolsover Castle, the riding house with this huge space, high windows and sand on the floor. So do keep an eye out on the English Heritage website when we have Cavendish's horses coming and really bringing that space back to life in the way that it would have been used by William in the 17th century. And actually, he even had a little viewing window at the top of the gallery so he could look down and watch or his visitors could admire what's happening there uh, in the past as we still can today. Now, shifting focus slightly from horses to donkeys, I understand that donkeys served quite an important working role at Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight. Andrew, what can you tell us about that? Well, donkeys have been used there for many centuries to turn a wheel which actually lifts up water as a wellhouse to provide water for the castle. When was that wheel first used then? The wellhouse was built in around 1580s by George Carey, who was captain of the island then, when England was threatened by invasion from Spain. So it was really important that the castle was self-sufficient and able to defend itself at that point. And so they built this wellhouse and they could turn this huge oak wheel and it would draw the bucket first of all down into the water at the bottom of the deep well and it could pull it back up again and it for the, for the one bucket load to be brought up the wheel had to be turned 255 meters and we think this was first of all it was a job that was done by prisoners so we think people who were being held prisoner in the castle would, would have been made to do it but we know that from at least 1696 so for more than 300 years it's been done by donkeys, a team of donkeys. Can you describe this wellhouse and how many donkeys would be involved in presumably marching round? Well, there only would have been one donkey working at any one time, and they would have circled round, if you can imagine it, as a sort of a circular building with the wheel in the middle. Mm-hmm. And the donkey walks around the outside of the wheel, and then the wheel's turned, and then through a series of cranks or whatever, that then links down to the bucket, which is then hauled up with the water in. But they had a series of donkeys, I presume, doing sort of shifts? They must have done, yes. I mean, today we have four donkeys at the site and it's, it's very interesting. They're all, they're all named with a, the names beginning with the letter J. And this apparently is a tradition going back to Charles I when he was a prisoner at Carisbrook. And when he wrote letters planning his escape and, and so forth, he always signed these letters with a letter J. And so for the past 150 years now, the castle has had these donkeys all beginning with the letter J. And today, the four donkeys that we have at the moment are called Jack, Jill, Jigsaw and Juno. (laughs) Good stuff. So we can actually see these uh, donkeys in action today, potentially, or at least in the um, seasonal periods. Yes, during the summer season, you can see the donkeys there demonstrating. They don't actually demonstrate raising water as such, but they demonstrate working in the wellhouse for our visitors. And unlike 
the donkeys when they're actually working it properly they only do much lighter duties so they only turn the wheel twice each demonstration and that takes them around 30 seconds of work so we're not really overworking them and the rest of the time they spend their time relaxing in their stables being groomed by the supervisors and grazing in their five acres of fields so they have quite a nice life but they are all really appreciated by our visitors and i think it's one of the main attractions of the site with people coming there to watch the donkeys and see them working in the well house well, let's move our attention away from animals with four legs now to those with two wings. And Emily, I understand that Down House, Charles Darwin's former residence in Kent, which we've been to on the podcast, was home to a particularly important collection of birds. Yes, that's right. So in about March 1855, Charles Darwin decided to breed pigeons. And therefore, he set up a sort of breeding loft at his home at Down House. So he became sort of what they call a pigeon fancier. And so he bred pigeons to pursue these kind of exotically plumed fancy varieties. So the loft was created by a local carpenter. It was a hexagonal shape, which is quite nice and quite visual. Mm. And he had a large aviary outside in which he could allow the birds to exercise. Darwin was enthusiastic about everything, but he lacked any practical knowledge on how to breed fancy pigeons so he enlisted his daughter Henrietta to help him look after his collection but he also had to look outside of his own network so he joined two societies of pigeon fanciers and he frequently visited lots of other societies at this time these societies were mixed very much by class so sort of middle class gentlemen would go to one of these pigeon breeding societies and sort of the lower classes would go to other clubs he went to all of them he wanted to gather as much information as possible mixing with all sorts of different types of men i suspect there was quite a large reason for why he wanted to do that he wasn't just this casual weekend pigeon fancier he had an overarching goal i suppose which was to study how species developed Yes, this was an experiment on a big scale. Mm. He wanted to establish that the common descent of all these different varieties of fancy pigeon was from one type of pigeon, which is the wild African rock dove. So he wanted to prove that all these kind of wildly different plumage and types and sizes was all through the development of selective breeding and not because they were inherently different types of pigeon. Do we know how many pigeons he actually had in this hexagonal uh, structure? By the end of February 1856, he had about 15 different breeds of pigeon. So they probably would have been in pairs. So he probably would have had quite a large number, but the different types of breeds was about 15. And do we know if any of these pigeons bred amongst themselves? He was consciously trying to breed different types. So he was Mm. sort of setting them up to breed. I mean, Charles Darwin was also kind of asking his friends and people he met at these pigeon societies to give him different pigeons as well as their skins and skeletons because that was all part of his careful measurements and recordings of all of the pigeons. He got very fond of the pigeons and he didn't like having to kill them in order to study them. But that was what his experiment involved, was trying to work out that these all had a common ancestor by studying them in detail. And this helped gather that valuable evidence for the theory of evolution and natural selection. I don't recall seeing the Pigeon House on our two visits to Down House before, but can you give us a rough idea of where it is at the property? The Pigeon House sadly no longer survives. We know it was somewhere near the well, which is near the present cafe seating area, but we don't know exactly where it was. Last summer, we undertook some archaeology to try and find out if we could narrow down where it was located and see if we could find any of the associated foundations for it. Sadly, we didn't find anything. However, Darwin, because he took to this as an amateur, bought lots of books about how to breed and look after pigeons. And some of those books are still in the library today. 
There's also over 80 of his pigeon skeletons, which he used to take careful measurements in the Natural History Museum. And we also have some of them at Down House as well. Are there any other sites where birds have been kept? I'm thinking of ones that we visited on the podcast already. Emily, you and I will know about this because Kenilworth has an aviary in the Elizabethan Garden, as I seem to remember. Andrew, you've got a, an idea on this, haven't you? Yes, there are a number of our sites that have um, have aviaries associated with them. I mean, as you just mentioned, Kenilworth Castle, we recreated an aviary there as part of the restoration of the Elizabethan Gardens in 2009. And this reconstruction is based on both archaeological evidence, but also a remarkable eyewitness account from 1575 in a letter from Robert Langham. And this sets out in great detail what the aviary would have looked like and the sorts of birds that were in it. This was the chap who famously got into the garden and started sort of taking mental notes, didn't he? Am I right in saying that? That's right, yeah. He he provides us with a really rich description of the garden, which is really the main evidence that we use for its recreation. And he, he saw the garden just as it was for the pageant for Queen Elizabeth I that uh, Robert Dudley laid on, yeah. So vital documentary evidence there, really. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, any other aviaries? Yes, well, there's the one at Audley End, which was built by Sir John Griffin Griffin in 1774. And this was, again, it was to house exotic birds. And this time it was built not near to the house, but actually on top of a, an Iron Age hill fort called Ring Hill, which is to the west of the house on a hillside on the opposite side of the River Cam. And this building it consists of a sort of Gothic-style cottage, Ornay, on which is sort of divided into three rooms. So you've got like a keeping room, you've got the room where the birds were kept, the bird room, and also a room which is used as a for for dining, a sort of dining room as well. Mm. And then there's upstairs as an area where the keeper of the uh, birds lived in accommodation upstairs. How far away from the actual house is this property? It's about half a mile, I'd have thought. I mean, it's not on English heritage land, so I haven't actually been up there, but I've seen pictures of it, and it's a, it's a really interesting-looking building. Certainly Sir John used to take his visitors up there to Ring Hill. He would, they would all get on horseback, and they would go and ride up there to visit the Avery, and it was a great place where you could look down from there over the estate because it was right on the top of this hill, so you could see the whole of the estate from up there. So, obviously, that's the aviary covered, but do we have any evidence of the birds at the property itself, at Audley End House? We know that the aviary housed a whole range of different exotic birds like eagles, parrots, finches and etc. And also that outside of it in an enclosure that was around the aviary there were exotic pheasants like golden pheasants and other game birds that were reared for the uh, Lord Braybrook shoot. And we don't have any direct photographs of these birds in up at the aviary, but what we do have is lots of stuffed birds in cases along the lower gallery at Audley End, which basically what happened was whenever the birds in the aviary died, the aviary keeper, who in the 90s, certainly in the later 19th century, John Richardson, he was a very expert taxidermist, and he used to stuff these birds, and then they were displayed in these cases. We, we think that that was happening throughout the 19th century and possibly earlier. We certainly know that the fourth Lord Braybrook, Richard Cornwallis Neville, was really interested in taxidermy, and he created this big collection of display cases in the lower corridor, probably about from around the 1840s, 50s, that sort of period, when he was a young man. Hmm. Uh, and also we know that stuffed birds were sometimes given away to visitors and long-serving servants. So, for instance, the former head gardener, James Vert, received a pair of stuffed kingfishers in a glass dome when he retired in 1912, and uh, those are still held by his descendants on their mantelpiece. Well, we've talked about some of the exotic birds at various properties. 
And I remember as well, Andrew, that we spoke in a previous interview about the Courtaulds at Eltham Palace, uh, Stephen and Virginia Courtauld. This was the 1930s and 40s. They had a particularly unusual pet. I think I'm right in saying it was Mahjong. <laughs> That's right. It was Mahjong the lemur. Uh, and he's, yeah, he was a really unusual pet and one that is really a, has become an emblem of Eltham Palace. I and mean, you can buy furry lemurs in the shop and uh, lemur designs everywhere. He was a a ringtail lemur, and he was bought by Stephen for his wife, Virginia Courtauld, as a wedding gift at Harrods, in Harrods Pet Department in 1923. And, you know, lemurs at the time must have been a very exotic pet. I mean, they they still would be today. But in the 1930s, it must have been very remarkable. Indeed, it, it actually made it into the, the, the local newspapers where it had tales of Mrs. Stephen Courtauld's queer pet, Mahjong the lemur. <laughs> but was Mahjong liked? Was he a good pet? Well, he was certainly much liked by the Courtaulds, particularly Ginny, who was really devoted to him. And there's, you know, there's lots of evidence of him like sort of sitting on her shoulder and sort of, and he had the run of the house. He was able to go wherever he liked. But he was certainly not liked by a lot of her guests who, well, he was pretty notorious for biting house guests, particularly under the table at dinner. And he's famously renowned for biting a gentleman called Percy Lemon, who was the wireless operator on this Arctic expedition that Stephen Courtauld had, had organised. And they were on board the Courtauld's yacht having a sort of farewell lunch before the men set off on the expedition. And the wireless operator, Percy Lemon, was bitten on, on the wrist and it caused quite a substantial injury and uh, there was a danger the whole expedition might have to be delayed while he recovered. So, you know, he's, he was quite vicious at times. And he particularly seems to take a dislike to male guests. And a number of oral testimonies have sort of talked about it, that people have reticence to come to dinner for fear of being bitten. So it must have been quite a scene. Do we see any clues of Mahjong, the ring-tailed lemur, today? We do indeed. I mean, the most obvious thing, of course, is his sleeping quarters. He had his own quarters, which were on the corridor between the two wings of the house. And that. It's a centrally heated sort of cage which is decorated on all the walls with sort of Madagascan scenes of bamboo forests, which was, the idea was to make him feel at home. And there's a sort of trapdoor and ladder leading out of his cage, which sort of leads into a sort of cubicle to the side of the entrance hall. And it means that he had the run of the whole house from there. He could sort of basically move his way around everywhere he wanted to. Did um, Mahjong have any sort of friends, shall we say, from the animal kingdom at the property? But there were lots of other animals there. There was a parrot called Congo. He was perched on a perch in, in Stephen Courtauld's study and he used to mimic Stephen answering the telephone, which must have been quite <laughs> unnerving to people coming into the room. And they had a number of dogs as well, but uh, we'll probably hear more about those later. Mm. So the Courtaulds definitely take the prize for the most unusual pets so far, I would say. Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, they're not just unusual pets, but they really sort of dominate the house in a way that particularly Jongi, he... There are clues about him all over the house. You've got, he appears in a portrait of the Courtaulds, which hangs on the corridor outside of Virginia's bedroom, where this is a portrait by Leonard Campbell Taylor, which shows Mr. and Mrs. Courtauld at 47 Grosvenor Square. And that has Jongi is perched on uh, Ginny's lap. And then there's also, he has a boss in the ceiling, the vaulted North Bay of the Great Hall. And also, if you go down into the basement in the billiard room down there, there's a mural by Mary Adshead, which depicts St. Cecilia. And that features a lemur sitting beside a column. So you know, the lemurs are all over the place there. Mm. And Jongi is his nickname. Yes, Jongi was his nickname. Because yes. he's called Mahjong, which is named, I think, after a Chinese board game, isn't it? 
It is indeed, yes. It's a it's a game originated in China, but it was played all over Southeast Asia. And of course, the Courtauld's were avid travellers and did spend quite a lot of time in uh, East Asia in the uh, 1930s, around the time that Zhongyi was at uh, Elton Palace. Of course. So Mahjong and the parrot we've been talking about. Can we do better than a talking parrot in a ring-tailed lemur for exoticism, though? I think we can. I mean, at Osborne House, they had an elephant and a couple of gazelles. That takes a lot to beat, doesn't it? And the gazelles had their own little house, which was in the children's Swish Cottage garden. Right. OK, let's talk about the elephant first. How did Queen Victoria, who would have been living at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, acquire an elephant and how long was it there for? Well, she received it as a gift from the King of Abyssinia, that's now Ethiopia, and it was given to the Queen in June of 1884 by the King's ambassador, and he'd come over to Osborne to sign a treaty which would recognise Abyssinia's independence, because at this time Britain needed the King of Abyssinia's help in organising an expedition to relieve British forces in Sudan, led by General Gordon, who were being attacked. There had been a rebellion there, and uh, the rebellion's leader, called the Mahdi, had encircled Khartoum, where Gordon was uh, holed up, Mm. and they needed to send a relieving force in, and the only place they could do that from was, was Abyssinia. So the British needed the Abyssinian support, and this was their way of sealing the treaty. It was a young elephant and it was called Gwold and it was presented to the Queen on the front lawn at Osborne in front of the household wing and it actually only stayed at Osborne a fairly short while. It, it stayed long enough that it had to be brought a supply of fresh water to drink and bathe in from a cattle pond on the uh, in the grounds but it was soon sort of taken off the island and ended up in London Zoo where it lived until uh, 1893. I have to imagine what Queen Victoria's face was when, <laughs> yes. when this thing arrived. Because you can't exactly turn it down, can you? Yes, I, d- I don't know what she would have quite made of it. And uh, of course. yes, to see one at Osborne would have been quite a shock. Let's talk about this gazelle house, though. Did this gazelle house hold any gazelles? Well, yes, we think it did. I mean, the gazelle house is a small sort of thatched building, which is now used as a, as a small sort of tea room in the Swiss Cottage Gardens, a uh, little sort of shop. But in the 1860s, we think that it housed a couple of gazelles that were brought back, we think, probably by the Queen's eldest son, Bertie, from Egypt, where he'd been on an expedition with his governor. It was part of his training to prepare him for being king. And he'd gone out to Egypt for a few months. And when he came back, we think that he brought these two gazelles with him. And they were housed in this thatched hut in the Swiss Cottage Garden. And we know that there must have been at least two of them because the Queen mentions in one of her diary entries about going down to the Swiss Cottage and seeing a baby gazelle which had just been born. And this was in 1865. So the fact one had been born there three years later suggests there must have been at least two of them down there. And a male uh, and a female, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Ah, very interesting. What happened to these gazelles? We don't hear much more of them after that, so I can only assume that they must sadly have died after a few years, because uh, although there is sort of form for this, in that the Queen often mentions certain things in her diary, and then you never hear about them again. I mean, she also mentions that there was a tiny chihuahua dog which had been given to her from Mexico as a pet. She describes it as being a tiny little dog, something like a very diminutive Italian greyhound, and she gave that to Mrs. Warren, who was the caretaker of the Swiss cottage, which you know she helped to look after the children when they went down there to do their activities. 
And that's only mentioned this one diary entry, and we never hear about that again either. So Very interesting. Okay. It sounds like every time that Queen Victoria got a pet, she gave it to somebody else to look after. I um, suspect so, yes. It was probably like a lot of her gifts. She was she was constantly being given diplomatic gifts and things by people, and she just sort of wanted to pass them on to somebody else. Yeah, quite. Well, no podcast episode about animals would be complete without a question about man's best friend, of course. What are the best examples of dogs and their owners at English heritage sites. Megan, what what have you got to say about man's best friend? Well, we know that a whole host of owners of English heritage properties were dog owners. And we've heard so much about the exotic and the unusual animals that might be found there. But actually, animals were probably part of a lot of owners' sort of everyday lives, particularly as we go into the Victorian era, when we get that sort of real idea of pets as companions and as as there for pleasure rather than work coming through. And there's a whole host of them. The the Courtauld's, who we've already heard about at Elton Palace, certainly had some dogs amongst their hordes of animals. And there's a wonderful photograph of Virginia Courtauld with these three really big dogs surrounding her from the 1940s. One is Caius, probably an Afghan hound. Sulfo, the giant poodle, who was said to be a little bit touchy at times, a little bit vicious. And I think the one which really captures the imagination and and some of the fun and frolics we have with our animals still today is Caesar, the Great Dame, described by visitors as quite imposing, but soft as cake if you get to know him. And he seems to have had an aspiration to become something of a Boy Scout. Now, the Boy Scouts did used to camp on some land which Stephen Courtauld allowed them to. And he would trot around after them, behind them, enjoying the antics. And he also seemed to be quite good at escaping, jumping over the garden gate. And um, perhaps when he was out there, he was quite partial to the odd sausage and would go to the (laughs) local butchers and steal them. And of course, Virginia would pay the subsequent bills. Um, And we've again, we've heard about Queen Victoria having all these exotic pets, but actually Queen Victoria is quite well known for her love of dogs, as was Prince Albert. And they, of course, had Osborne House that we've heard of already. The Queen had all manner of different breeds of dogs, colleagues and pugs and dash hounds, and even actually competed in crufts in 1891. And I encourage you, actually, whenever you go around your properties, have a look at the portraiture that you see, and you'll quite often see dogs sat alongside. And the Royal Cuppernil had quite a few of their dogs painted. Prince Albert's greyhound, Eos, can be found and he can actually be seen in sculpture in the grounds of Osborne and he was very friendly. If there was ever any plum cake in the room, we've got a bit of a cake theme going. Um, (laughs) Morris, Albert's favourite St Bernard, or perhaps a dog which might be better known, Dash, who was the Queen's childhood playmate and companion among lots of other dogs she had throughout her life. And again, if we go even further back into the 18th century, we still find our greatest companion dogs there. And Henrietta Howard, who was the owner of Marble Hill in Twickenham, was known to have had a number of dogs and probably lap dogs. We know about these from accounts and poetry from the time. 
We know about one of her dogs, Marquise, who later her friend Horace Walpole would write about when Marquise had puppies and how the royal couple, so that would have been Queen Caroline and and George II at the time, came to meet these puppies and they would all drink cordial, which was a hot drink associated with lying in or welcoming a new child or baby to the home and they'd celebrate the birth of these puppies. And it seems to have got around Henrietta Howard's uh, social network because soon after she was receiving letters from her friend Lord Chesterfield who lived at another English heritage property ranger's house writing on how the dog should be educated not to be snappish and snarling nor over nice and actually what the letter turns out to be is a sort of a satire of the different people at court at the time and what they might teach these dogs Uh and Henrietta writes back in the guise of her dog and it becomes this whole quite entertaining episode. Oh that's fascinating. Um, Didn't they have great fun by letter in those days? Really creative. They were very creative. And it wasn't just in letter. Poetry at the time um, in the 18th century increasingly mentioned dogs. And Alexander Pope, the famed poet who lived nearby, wrote a heroic epistle from a dog at Twickenham to a dog at court. The dog at Twickenham was his dog Bounce and the dog at court was Henrietta's dog Fop. And it said, we country dogs love nobler sports and scorn the pranks of dogs at court. So dogs really became a vehicle to not only enjoy and and have these wonderful pets around you, but to comment on court life and country life. And I kind of love the way they describe Fop as her lady lapdog ship. So it's it's great fun with dogs um, in the past as we have, have today. That's really interesting. Now, the Disney film says that all dogs go to heaven. But at English heritage sites, obviously, they're also laid to rest, I presume. Were there any dog or pet cemeteries? There were. And I think that these wonderful cemeteries can be very sad, but they also show the great love that these owners had for their pet dogs and the sentimentality surrounding it at the time. And we have a couple of examples of pet cemeteries at our sites. At Rest Park, there was a cemetery which dates from 1829 when Lord Grantham, later Earl de Grey, erected a dog monument. And it's this rather lovely statue of a reclining dog on a stone pedestal. And around it are 16 surviving headstones dating from the 1830s to the 1860s. And these are of his favourite dogs, for his favourite his favorite pets, his favourite animals. He was interested in shooting on the estate as well. And we know some of the names from these. You've got Tiger and you've got Totty. And there again, there are some lovely photographs showing these dogs. Um, there's Lady Amabel Cowper from around 1865 on the terrace at rest with her three dogs, her little terriers, one sort of sitting on a chair, one almost on her shoulder like a parrot, and another one um, sort of sat to the side. And actually, the mention of on a shoulder like a parrot brings me to another pet cemetery that we had, which is at Brodsworth Hall in South Yorkshire. And that's among lovely woodland area and was used from the 1860s through to the 1980s. And pretty much most of these are dogs. However, among them is Polly the parrot as well. (laughs) So not only dogs as as man's best friend, but perhaps a parrot as well. Yes, of course. Well, you want something that can talk back to you, don't you, really? How important a role do animals continue to play at English heritage sites in telling the stories of the past? I think animals are so important because they really give you a a sense of how life would have been at the time. And actually, my earliest memory of visiting an English heritage site was seeing the donkeys at Carisbrook Castle. 
And it reminds you not only how these creatures supported the running of everyday life, helped provide food, how they provided entertainment and companionship throughout the history. And that actually, when we walk around these sites, we might imagine a little dog by our heel as well. Or even perhaps... Or an elephant or a parrot. Yeah, or if you're at Down House, there might have been the flapping of wings. And at Kenilworth today, you can still hear the lovely song from, I believe, the African birds that are in the aviary there. So that continues to live on, doesn't it? Emily, you know about that, don't you? Because um, we were standing near it. Yeah, it can be really beautiful. It adds a lovely sound with the with the fountain as well at uh, Kenilworth. It brings real life to that garden. So without the birds and the fountain, I feel like it could be quite still, but it gives a kind of feeling of living in history because it's still alive today, which I think is quite nice. Andrew, what, what about you? For me, uh, what I like is the fact that we can often get close to nature and to wildlife as well in our gardens. You know, I, I remember being out in the grounds at Rest Park near to the bath house and seeing a kingfisher diving down into the water to catch mm. a fish. You know, I've seen bats swirling around uh, the castle at Belsay as well. You know, we, we have lots of wild animals as well as the ones which are domesticated around our site. So there's just a lovely place to, uh, they're lovely refuges for nature and wildlife as well as they are for domesticated animals. So plenty of sights, sound colours and everything for every season really yes for every different season and and you know it's just the animals at our sites are so important they're loved by our visitors they're a great attraction for families they they really sort of bring the sites alive you've been listening to the english heritage podcast Next week, we'll deliver some winter chills as we discuss stories of medieval ghosts, ghouls, and hauntings at English heritage sites. And the oxen dragging the cart with tankless foul remains upon it are described as being so frightened that they bolt and almost drown. It's chilling stuff. Thanks for listening. See you next time.